This is the Helping Out Podcast. I'm Vic King. You may have heard about Mark Ramiro in the news. Late one night in July 2014, he was with several friends. They were all high on drugs, and they were filming stunts in the basement of his South Baltimore home until things went fatally awry. Mark's friend of 15 years, Darnell Mitchell, he strapped on a bulletproof vest and asked to be shot in the chest, but Mark aimed inches too high, and the bullet hit Darnell just above the vest. Mark rushed his friend to the hospital, but he was too late. So Mark came to Helping Out Mission in June 2015. He was awaiting sentencing. Uh, He had already successfully participated in several short-term recovery programs, but he was constantly wrestling with the trauma and the shame over what he had done. In March 2016, he was sentenced to four years, but he went to prison with nine months clean time and, more importantly, a new perspective on his past and his future. Somehow I was able to get permission to bring an audio recorder to visit Mark in jail, and this is the short version of our conversation. Just a heads up, although everything we do uh, is talking about addiction and recovery, which you know, often has pretty serious and dark topics and themes. This episode in particular contains language and content that is definitely not appropriate for children and maybe not for those who are sensitive to uh, descriptions of violence. On to the interview. Growing up, it, it was confusing for me. Uh, you know, my parents, they were foreign. I, I was born in the Philippines. Um, then I moved to Baltimore when I was uh, two years old. I'm the youngest of four sons. Nice. So, I'm the oldest of four. All right. <laughs> And um, they pretty much did their own thing. So I guess it, it wasn't more so dysfunctional. It was just uh, separated. Right. Up. What was it like growing up with whatever identity you felt like you had in West Baltimore? You know what I'm saying? I, I didn't feel like I had an identity. I didn't really know who I was because, um, yeah, I look Filipino, but, um, you know, I talk and carry myself as more of a West Baltimore American. Right, but, you know, right. They're still old-fashioned, traditional. Traditional Filipino. Yeah, yeah. and, um, you know, I know they did the best they could for me, but, you know, my father didn't teach me a lot of things about life. Right. They were there, you know, they put food on the table, they put a roof on my head, provided for me, but yeah. as far as, you know, having actual parents... I, I kind of felt like I, I never had it. Right. So who do you feel like you learned about life from? Music, TV, just random stuff, just day-to-day, you know, experiences. Right. So when you start, when you start like, either drinking or using or whatever? Middle school, my father, I wouldn't say a bad alcoholic because he was still functional, but he had a, a military background, if I'm not mm. mistaken. He was in the Marines, and, you know, they drank a lot. You know, my uncles and stuff would come over, um, watch the old, you know, Mike Tyson fights and stuff, and uh, a lot of drinking. A lot of times I would sneak around and drink, or, you know, cigarettes was always available. And uh, so I guess those two was my first two drugs experimenting. Then, um, you know, I started trying marijuana. I tried smoking weed in seventh, eighth grade, but between, like, 
from ninth grade till my sobriety date. Right. I was a real heavy weed smoker. I smoked a, a lot of weed. I, I sold a lot of weed, so it was always available to me. So. Sure. So how'd you get into video stuff? Making videos, and what kind of videos? I love all forms of art, and you name it. Um, music, uh, culinary, painting, tattoos, music videos, photography, clothing. You know, I, I have associates in um, fashion marketing. I know a lot of guys in Baltimore who are like um, underground, <laughs> mediocre musicians, like rappers, hip-hop guys. So, um, I, and I was always like hanging out in the studio with them. And um, I wanted to make visuals to what they were saying. And yeah. To, you know, just try to paint their picture for them. Uh, I used to watch my brother draw, my oldest brother. I used to watch him draw, and I was always into uh, comic books and, uh, like, the superhero character, so I collected a lot of cards. I collected a lot of comic books. And the first time I say I really, really, really fell in love was, um, I remember it was middle school. She was our teacher. Her name was Miss Dunlap. And um, we took a trip to New York for like two, three nights, and we went to like the Radio City and Hard Rock Cafe and the Art Museum up there. And you know, I look at life as a, you know, just a perspective. We got our first copy of the book. poetry book uh -huh. in this week. I mean, I, I love how it turned out. It's nice. I should have brought, I should have brought it to show you, but you'll see it soon enough. Right. Um, yeah, your artwork is looking good, and you got a credit. There on the okay. inside thing, you know, Thank cover you. art by Mark Ramirez. You can show him and be like, yeah. <laughs> That's me. I'm published, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so, when I was 21, you know, I was getting into a lot of trouble, you know, working jobs, selling weed, just doing whatever, and um, just partying. And um, my mother decided for me to uh, get away from here and, uh, you know, start something fresh. So, um, I went to school, uh, art school for two years in York, Pennsylvania. And I, I picked up an associate's degree in fashion marketing. Um, I learned how to sew. I knew, um, learned how to pretty much start my own fashion line. And I was selling T-shirts, but um, that's when uh, you know drug addiction became heavy. From finishing college, and, uh, I didn't write this, but thank you. I I don't know. I just thought like I had the world in palm of my hands. I thought I was gonna be like famous. I don't know why. I thought I was gonna be famous. I thought I was like, yeah, I'm gonna be good. And I end up coming to Baltimore and uh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I had resumes and stuff, but I didn't want to work in retail. And at the time, that was the only thing available for me to work in, like a Macy's or something. And throughout. All those, even, uh, you know, I was doing tattoos, too. Right. So through the schooling, and, you know, I was doing tattoos. And after um, I finished school, I got proper uh, tattoo teaching. Um, I had a four to five months apprenticeship through this guy. He was, But he had a drug addiction, too. Mm. And, uh, I started, you know, experimenting with pills, you know, Percocets and, you know, whatever, um... Xanax, um, Oxycontin, Opanas, whatever, and all those, uh, benzos, whatever, in that direction. And it started affecting, you know, my whole character, my whole mind frame, uh, everything. To whatever kind of degree you're comfortable 
talk me through the night your friend died. Mm. At that time, um, I was doing fair. I had a townhouse down Westport. Um, you know, had a vehicle and stuff. And uh, my friend, his character name is called Scatman. So we did part one. In my opinion, it wasn't successful, but uh, you know, a lot of people found it interesting, humorous, and stuff. It pretty much jackass type of vibe, and um, that's what we were aiming for. How long had you had you known? Don now, um, fifteen years, maybe more. Yeah. Right. So you guys went way back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, throughout that whole week, um, we were working on the video. We were doing, you know, funny stuff. He would um, get shot with paintball guns. He was going down to Harbor um, around 4th of July. He had red, white, and blue and striped thongs on and holding bum signs. And <laughs> just, you know, just funny stuff. So we were just working on that stuff. And that day, you know, we, we popped the pills. He came over kind of early that day. So we were kind of... Getting messed up, drinking, smoking, popping pills, and um, he was doing funny stuff. I recorded. I guess all of our guards were down, and somehow we came up with the idea to get shot with a vest on, a bulletproof vest. You know, I had two of them because uh, I got them through tattooing. So we like, all right, well, um, put both vests on. And, you know, it was a 22 caliber revolver, you know. Whose gun was it? It was mine. Okay. I know it wasn't right, but same thing through uh, tattooing, you know. Uh, to be brutally honest, I would come across a lot of handguns through tattooing. Right. You know, not thinking, but I guess at the time, I, I lived in uh, some tough neighborhoods. So those are one of the things to have, either a gun or a knife. Right. Had you ever shot shot it before? Um, no, I never shot the twenty two before. It was just there. It was like about this small. And I, I just thought it was it was old and so um we went in my basement and did it. And usually I'm the cameraman. That's what was funny that night. I never participated in any of the stunts. I was always the camera guy, um, the editor and stuff, or I would kind of direct it. So, um, you know, that night I ended up participating in the stunt. My judgment, my God, everything, we all, it was just down. And I think it was deep in that. It was like, uh, in the spiritual aspect, the devil was like, this is the perfect time. Why not? Perfect time for what? To catch me off guard. I, I would never do no. I would never point no gun at nobody. Uh, just out of joking. Period. Just, I, that's not my character. Right now. Yeah, I, I had guns, and but that was just uh, for me to feel secure. And uh, I don't think him in his right mind would have been like, who would want a gun pointed? Like, so. Um, it happened, and um, like that little bit in me knew, I, like, I knew it wasn't right. It was recorded, I never seen the video, I didn't want to. My lawyer showed it to different people, um, like body language readers. He showed it to the brother, 
um, you know, Donnell's brother and stuff. And, you know, even they said he didn't want to do that. He didn't, you know, he didn't. I wanted to do it as far as the stunt and the, you know, the art part of it. That's it. Right. But um, I don't know. I just aimed it and, and you know, pulled the trigger. And uh, as soon as I pulled the trigger, I knew I messed up. I, it felt wrong. I didn't know where it, I, I didn't know where it hit. Um, he, but he just made this noise. I, you know, I, I can't get it out of my head. He um, just made this weird noise, like, ugh. And I can tell by his facial expression and everything. I, I knew, like, damn, he fucked up. So he immediately ran to him, pulled the vest off and stuff. And this is a 22 bullet, so it's like, you know, like the size of a pimple. And it was right here. The vest stopped right there. So it was a hit, like, about right there. So the vest stopped at about his nipple line, maybe? Yeah. And I was trying to aim. It was a plate. A plate like right there. Because I felt like that was the safest place. I missed. Hit right here. And he just made the sound. He was standing up for like half a minute. And then like all this blood spitting out of it. You know, I can see everything. And I'm like, I sobered up. And I'm like, oh shit. Oh, everybody's like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. But my first initial instinct, drive him to the hospital. Because I live not even five minutes from University of Maryland. You know, I hurry up, ran upstairs. I was like, because was, we was trying to get him up the steps, but his body was so heavy and so much blood. It was It was three, three guys trying to pick him up, but he was so heavy, and uh, blood, was just, he was real slippery, and we couldn't, it was hard to get him up the steps, I had blood everywhere, uh, everywhere all over me, I had flip-flops on, a wife beater, and some basketball shorts, I'd have my phone, nothing, they asked uh, what was wrong, what happened, I was scared, um, I lied to the nurses. I said uh, it was a home invasion. I said somebody tried to rob us or whatever. It just was unreal, real, surreal. I was just sitting there, spaced out, blanked out. The nurse came back, the doctor came back. I was like, you know, come back. You know, he didn't make it. He, he's dead. We couldn't do nothing about him. Um, so, you know, I started crying and stuff like that. And uh, I, was like, I didn't believe, I couldn't believe it. You know, I still don't believe it to this day. Like, I, um, I mean, I know, you know, I, I know he's gone, but uh, I lie to myself sometimes and say uh, <clears throat> he's on vacation and stuff. Uh, so... So um, sometimes I lie to myself and say she's on vacation and stuff like that. You know, that's when I, um, detectives pick me up straight from you know the hospital. I went to homicide and uh, you know they were asking me questions and stuff. Part of me felt like they weren't there to help me. And they didn't care less for that. But um, 
that's when they, they charged me with uh, first and second degree murder and uh, handgun, handgun with violent intent. It was two other guys that were there. That I was the only one who got charged, put it like that. He said, fuck him. I heard the detective say that. When I, you know, he put me in, in a body seat, took out my clothes, took pictures of my clothes, because I had blood all over me and stuff. And the detective said, fuck him. He let him, I, I guess. You know, he was talking to another detective. And he's like, oh, they gave me that charge. Even though they knew the story, because they found the camera, they knew everything. Not everything, but... It was pretty cut and dry. It wasn't nothing hard. I did five, six months um, downtown. Um, I got bail. Got out on my own recon. But the circumstances was to go to be on house arrest and to go to a 28-day rehab. The counselor, uh, Miss Kim, she she liked me a lot. So she kind of had her foot on my neck. She was a real nice lady. She, I kind of still wanted to do what I want because I didn't want aftercare. I didn't want to go to a halfway house. I didn't, you know, I just wanted to do the program, go back home. And, uh, you know, I kept fighting. Her. We would go back and forth. And I would say, all right, fine, I'm going. Then I would say, no, I'm not going to change my mind. And uh, she said, pray about it and read page 71 and 74. And it's a passage. And the A book um, that said the turning your will over and give it to your power or something. And um, I prayed that night. You know, I just told God, like, show me something, tell me something, give me a type of sign if I should go or not go to advocate. And he didn't show me a sign, he didn't answer me, but I felt different. So I said, all right, cool, I'll go. You know, I'll go. You felt open to it. Yeah. Um, I had a sponsor. I got as far as to eighth step. I never went past that. That's where I stopped because um, I had a bail hearing. That's when I went to helping a mission. Kevin Haley, he did me a huge favor. And he even said, he said, um, you're not coming here with that thing on your ankle. I had uh, about a good 45 minute to hour conversation prior going to helping up mission with Kevin. Asked me about my situation, my drug addiction, and just different questions. And he, I guess that was him feeling me out, and that was him doing intake. You know, he said, all right, fine. You know, I'm going to give this kid a chance. And why, why did you want to come to helping up? Well, to be honest, I didn't. <laughs> uh, my lawyer advised me to go there. He's the one who, who told me about the program. I never knew Helping a Mission existed at all. I looked at it on the internet when my lawyer told me, and he was like, this is a homeless shelter. <laughs> I said, whatever. Here goes another ride. At first, I didn't have no choice. I, I didn't have no say. At the, I didn't have no say. So It was either coming to help you up or what? Going to jail. So when you first came, you were kind of like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, college halfway house, recovery home, you know, wow. But I, I remember the first time met Kevin, he took me to the maintenance, he didn't speak to me, like we didn't have no conversation, he took me straight to maintenance and said, take this thing off his ankle. <laughs> so nobody knew how he gave me, I said, give me, give me that flathead, I popped it. 
You're like, man, that's a true criminal right there. This is a joke. <laughs> but, um, you know, when I first got that, I was upset. You know, I didn't want to be there. I did the uh, blackout, doing the, you know, past the Gary thing. And I found him interesting, him and Mike Brown, they were pretty interesting. Even then, I try to spread my art. You know, Pastor Gary would make me write the uh, the word of the week on the board every morning. I broke the record for the longest restriction <laughs> in home history. <laughs> but throughout being there, there's good people there, man. You hear different stories, and um, you know, I got real close to different guys. Nick was because we came in that same week, you know, when you go to college for the first time and you see that go, we're freshmen, it's, you know, that type of thing. Right. Mike, because <laughs> he's the security guy at the 23 deaths and um, they put me at the 23 deaths. We, we didn't talk much. A lot of time when I first started working there, it was dead silence. I, we just doing our job, but then... We started talking to each other and opening up and saying stuff. And and I used to see the stuff he would do. He would help people. I would like watch and observe him. He's a giver. You know, he always gives cigarettes away. If he could, give somebody, Mike, let me hold a dollar and buy me a rip. He would do it. You know, and he would talk to me. He can tell when I was going through stuff and feeling some kind of way. But, um, yeah, I got real close. And, and other guys, too. I got close to other guys. But, um, you know, everybody played their part in helping me. You know, you, Kevin, even Rashid, even you. In your nine months at home, what would you say were, like, the most helpful things? I mean, I would say, for me, I like the spirituality part. I follow that part. You know, reading the Bible, praying, talking to certain individuals, you know, the meditating. Uh, and when I mean meditate, not the whole um, Buddha type of thing, just sitting back, uh, you know, by yourself. And, uh, or, you know, there's a lot of times I would just sneak in the chapel and nobody being there. And I just like sit in the corner where somebody could see me. And I just think. The joke is, they say, God lives in jail <laughs> because majority of people who get incarcerated find some type of spirituality. <laughs> For some reason, I don't know why, but so how, I mean, how does that help you in the midst of going through all this mess? Um, it will help me with me trying to forgive myself. It helped me with um, you know, I used to blame other people for my own fuck ups. It helped me be open to more people, to talk with people. A lot of times in my life I was antisocial. Maybe it was my character or maybe it was due to my drug addiction. I, I don't know. I try to follow what I what I seen. I'm a sponge everywhere I go. So to be honest, I, I try to not say follow Mike, but I watched him do a lot of stuff. So I picked up on it. You know, so I try to be be a, a giver. You know, if I could help somebody, if I could even have a conversation, or just to say, hey, you know, you all right? You, what's going on? You okay? You good? Those little things went a long way. I mean, I'm just remembering back to the beginning of when we started talking, you were saying, like, growing up, you couldn't remember. Nobody really stood out to you kind of like as like a mentor. Do you know what I mean? But it sounds like Mike Knighton kind of became like that to some extent. Is that fair to say? I, I, I wouldn't give him that credit. <laughs> but it's like, but yeah, I, yeah, because... 
he's older, you know, he's an older guy. And to be honest, I never had a lot of, you know, I had my father, he was around, and I had three older brothers, but I never had uh, like that type of figure in my life. A lot of stuff was friends, homeboys, and you know, working with him and being close with him, uh, he, he kind of rubbed off on me. You know, I read his story too on uh, the newsletter and seeing where he came from, and we got personal too. That meant a lot to me because uh, he trusts me for some reason. You know, something about me that he trusts and that he uh, feels comfortable with. You know, letting down uh, his God with certain things. That's special. You know, I I heard in the news article or whatever that you were able to get together with the family. your family and the family of your friend. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? It was emotional, but it was good. It was real necessary, and it broke the ice. You know, they were upset at me, which they have every right to be. Any family, and I can't be mad at that, you know, for, for what I did. You know, they were upset, but they were open and they were forgiven. His mother, you know, how we hugged a whole bunch of times. They told me how they felt, um, you know, how it hurt them, how it affected them, you know. They expressed themselves, and I expressed myself, too. And um, I felt like it, I needed it, and it had to be done, you know. What, what did you say to them? I apologize. Uh, I said, you know, words can't express how sorry I am. And to show my remorse and I would never be able to replace Don now but I'd do anything in my power to fill that void or pick up the slack or responsibility if it's financial or if it's just a phone call you know and um, I told him what happened same thing I told you you know drugs bad prank going wrong a lot of immaturity a lot of stupidity but I, I think this whole situation as a whole is um, deeper than what it seems. I feel like it was a sign to, to help, you know, because I was, I was going bad. Even my daughter's daycare money, you know, uh, my business money, it got bad. It took over, kept me away from people. It, it, it made me treat people differently, it, you know, a whole different person. I'm not going to say the addiction made me lose faith, but somehow in the mix of that, I lost faith. I was upset, depressed, you know. Describe just this past week. <laughs> Court was real nerve-wracking. Pray for the best, expect the worst. I was smoking a lot of cigarettes at the time. God does stuff off. Uh, he works in mysterious ways, you know. And I think he kind of prepared me for that. Because, yeah, I, I was upset. I, but I wasn't. I was upset because the transition part of it. But I wasn't upset that I got incarcerated or got locked up or got time. I don't nobody want to go to jail. I don't, I don't care who you are. This place is not for anybody. You know, there's a big difference between hum food and this food. So the guys at the hum, you better appreciate that, because this food is shit. <laughs> you know, and just stuff like, you know, missing my girlfriend, not seeing my daughter, stuff like that. But I wasn't sad. I wasn't 
it, it was different from, you know, 2014 when I came here. A lot different. How, how so or why? It just felt different. It's, I don't know. It's a whole different vibe. Like, I'm, I'm happy. Not to say I'm happy to be here, but I'm cool. Like, I know this is temporary. You know, I don't know what the big man plans are for me, but this was part of it. This was like the icing on the cake to kind of set things straight. And I think this is his, uh, him testing me too. Is this kid going to turn his back on me? Is he going to lose his faith? Is he going to give up? And stuff like that. I still pray frequently. I, like I said, I was reading the, the Gospel of John, and I, you know, I read the Daily Bread. I think uh, my faith in God just kept me together. Because if, if you knew me then, and if you know me now, you, you can tell. And I'm saying that because that's what I feel. I'm in the system, you know. Um, and I'm cool. <laughs> they gave me what they gave me. I know it's temporary. I know it won't last long. And uh, Because walking around with a chip on your shoulder and complaining and being bummed out, it's not going to help at all. <laughs> you started thinking at all about after you get out, kind of what your hopes are? I probably won't go back to the program, but I'm going to visit often because I felt like that's always going to have a place in my heart. It, it did something for me. You know, I wanted to graduate. I was going to, but the judge didn't want me to graduate. I heard. You know, you know I had three months left. I did the whole program on restriction, and I took it like a champ. You know, I tried to be as productive as I possibly could. I know I could have tried harder, but, you know, I was going through a lot of psychological, mental, emotional things. So I'm not blaming nobody, but that's just the honest truth. You know. I'm going to, you know, get a job, you know, work. I already have some places in mind already that's pretty concrete. I'm going to stay sober. You know, I'm going to still continue to do my art. You know, paint, draw, t-shirt stuff. Once the opportunity is given, I'm going to reopen the t-shirt business and do it the proper way. I'm going to always help people if I can, no matter where I go, what I do. I want to, uh, you know, tell people my story. I want to, you know, the mistakes and uh, the drug addiction and see if it can have an effect on somebody, if I can help someone or change somebody's life. What would you want people to take from it? Uh, be yourself honestly, deep down inside. Don't try to fit in with nobody. Don't try to impress them. Be be honest if that's who you are. You know, have faith in some type of higher power because you have to lean on something beyond yourself. They say if you put yourself first and if you think it's all about you, then you're already lost. You know, stay clean, stay drug-free. Relationship hopes? Relationship hopes. I'm still keeping contact with a lot of the guys and helping them mission. Because now I'm like, I'm more open to people. You know, at first I was real guarded. Anything else you want to say on tape? I would like to thank everybody at the Help of the Mission for everything they've done, whether 
they realize it or not, stay drug free. That's a big issue. I know it's real cliche and I know it's common, but it don't be nowhere but jail but death. It's nothing at the end. It's no pot of gold at the end of that road. And God didn't give you the blessings of life to waste it and to get trashed every day. You know, you, you weren't put on this earth to, you know, not for that. You know, life is short. I'm happy to wake up every day, just open my eyes and breathe. So, you know, I think people should take advantage of that. You know? It's good work, bro. Thank you.